Hello, I am Clara Sandoval, professor at the School of Law and Human Rights Center at the University of Essex and at the Geneva Academy, and I am also the director of programs at the Global Survivors Fund. Today, I am going to deliver a lecture on selected issues on the right to reparation of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Great progress has taken place during the last two decades on the development and recognition of the right to reparation of victims of gross human rights violations and serious violations of humanitarian law. This includes, of course, victims and survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Sexual violence in conflict often amounts to crimes against humanity or can be also constitutive of acts of genocide. Rape and other forms of sexual violence can also amount to war crimes. Sexual violence, I must say and remember, is not only about rape. Forced slavery, forced pregnancy, sexual exploitation, forced nudity or castration are also forms of sexual violence. I also need to remember everyone that sexual violence is often linked to reproductive violence, such as forced sterilization or forced abortion. Indeed, many women who suffer rape are also pregnant as a result of rape, and they are forced to carry children that they didn't want, so becoming victims of forced motherhood. Such forms of violence are also often interlinked to other forms of violence, such as displacement, killing, and enforced disappearances. This means that there is a full continuum of violence and crimes that survivors of conflict-related sexual violence have to face. While great progress has taken place, various challenges remain in place that prevent victims from fulfilling the right to reparation. Today, I would like to concentrate on some of those challenges, particularly legal challenges, implementation challenges, and the massive gap we face in relation to guarantees of non-repetition to ensure that these crimes don't happen again. And we'll finalize with some remarks about some lessons learned that in my, per in my experience and knowledge, can definitely enable the fulfillment of this right in the future. Let me start with legal challenges. There is no international treaty that explicitly recognizes the right to reparation for conflict-related sexual violence, although there are multiple treaties, both international and regional, that recognize the right to reparation. At the international level, we have various international treaties like the ICCPR, the ICSER, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and the Convention Against Torture, just to mention some, that clearly include provisions that either recognize the right to an effective remedy, as for example, does the ICCPR under Article 2.3, or that explicitly recognize the right to reparation that certain victims have, as is the case of Article 14 of the Convention Against Torture, that clearly recognizes the right to reparation of victims of torture, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Uh, regional instruments have made also an important contribution in addressing gender violations. And this is particularly important because, in my view, these regional instruments go beyond the international framework, noting that certain violations and certain recognition of rights should not be gender neutral. And as I said, they address gender violations, such as, for example, violence against women, which of course includes sexual violence, sexual violence being a form of violence against women, and also recognize the reparation for such violence, as for example, does the Istanbul Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women in Europe and Domestic Violence, 
also the Maputo Protocol on the Rights of Women in Africa, and the Belen do Pará Convention on the Prevention, Punishment, and Eradication of Violence Against Women. These treaties include, although not fully fleshed, and this is the point I want to note, a right to reparation, including for conflict-related sexual violence. Now, I need, of course, to refer to the basic principles and guidelines on the right to a remedy and reparation, the famous Bamboan principles, which have become a key point of reference and reparations worldwide. And while these basic principles are silent on gender issues and conflict-related sexual violence, it is an incredibly rich document that has provided many tools to advance the protection of the right to reparations of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Let me just give you an example. They indicate that reparation is not only about providing survivors with certain forms of reparation, be it, for example, rehabilitation or satisfaction, but it is also about the process, experiencing a reparatory process for survivors, and they clearly indicate how this is meant to happen, not only through judicial remedies, but also through other remedies, through access to information, etc. But the basic principles also include five forms of reparation that become crucial to address the harms that survivors of conflict-related sexual violence have suffered. And those are restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-recurrence. They enter into detail about what each of these forms of reparation mean. And for example, just to note, rehabilitation is for the first time defined in a very comprehensive manner to include not only access to services related to physical and mental health, but other social and legal services that become crucial again for survivors to be able to bounce back in their lives. Uh, so there are multiple other things that I could mention about the basic principles, but my point here is that although this is a gender-neutral instrument, for many considered soft law, for me some of its provisions can even claim to be customary international law, not all, but yes, some of them. This is a key instrument that has paved the way for the protection of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence and the right to reparation. These treaties and the basic principles have been complemented also by other instruments that, while not binding, are very important as they recognize, again, the gender dimensions of the right to reparation and have helped to flesh out the reach and scope of the right to reparation. And here I have particularly two in mind. The Nairobi Declaration on Women's and Girls' Right to a Remedy and Reparations and the UN Secretary General Guidance Note on Reparations for Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. They really provide us with key concepts, such as, for example, the Nairobi Declaration includes the concept of transformative reparation, or the UN Secretary General Guidance Note includes various principles to operationalize the right to reparation for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Equally, I need to refer to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, initiated by the landmark UN Security Council 1325 in the year 2000, that has uh, been key to visibilize conflict-related sexual violence and lately the right to reparation, as is illustrated by Security Council Resolution 2467 from 2019, that recognizes the right to reparation of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, including children born of war, encourages member states to adopt a survivor-centered approach in preventing and responding to sexual violence in conflict and post-conflict situations, provides the idea that there needs to be meaningful participation 
for survivors at all stages of transitional justice processes and supports the establishment of a survivors fund that indeed has become the global survivors fund for which I am working nowadays. Uh, so these key Security Council resolutions have also added to that body of law, practice, etc., that is helping us to operationalize the right to reparation for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. However, all of these instruments and resolutions uh, are not yet sufficient to fully flesh out the reach and scope of the right to reparation for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Gaps still exist. A careful reading of these instruments for example, at times lead you to believe that the only form of, of reparation that these survivors could actually aspire to is compensation, when in reality what we need is comprehensive reparation, including, if necessary, all the five forms of reparation that the basic principles mention. Uh, but it also shows, for example, that transformative reparations, while present in the Nairobi Declaration, have not made their way yet to treaty law. And again, many questions remain as to whether, for example, some of the gender-specific treaties, uh, like CEDO, like the Maputo Protocol, like the Istanbul Protocol, like the Belém do Pará Convention, etc., also apply to all those that suffer conflict-related sexual violence. And let me here say that the victims of these crimes are not only women. Yes, women suffer it in terrible proportions, but men, boys, and members of the LGBTI community also suffer conflict-related sexual violence. So massive question to put on the table is, are we also protecting them with these treaties? Clearly, you can make the protection possible through treaties like the ICCPR. But when it comes down to gender-sensitive treaties, like the ones I just mentioned before, do they also apply to them? And how do they create protection and up to what point? These are massive questions that remain in place. Or how is this international framework applicable to children born of war? This is an issue that we are just starting to grapple with, although children born of war uh, have been a, a consequence and also the victims uh, of, of this terrible crime of sexual violence uh, for, for years, for, for history. But this is not the biggest challenge we have. Yes, there are normative issues that need to be addressed. We need necessarily to look into the reach and scope of this right and hopefully continue to flesh out with a gender dimension uh, what this right entails for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. I want now to move to what for me is one of the big challenges uh, that we have uh, to face if we really want to make this right a reality for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence and this is the implementation gap. Why? Because although we have international treaties that recognize the right, we have states talking about the right. I am really impressed when I engage with the states to see them really talking the talk. They, they recognize that there is a right to reparation. They include it in peace agreements, even for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. But from the jargon or the legal jargon on reparation to the action, to the real implementation and operationalization of this right, we face a massive gap. And, and let me try to explain what, why do we have that gap and what can be done about that gap. Uh, the first thing I need to say here is that 
the recognition by states of the right to reparation mean that they have various obligations that derive from it. A key first obligation is the international obligation to put in place effective remedies so that any victim, and in this case survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, are able to protect their rights. And these remedies could be of two types. They could be judicial remedies, for example, being able to go to a court and claim civil damages for the violations that the person suffered. But it could also be through a criminal proceeding that after obtaining you know, the investigation, prosecution, and punishment of a perpetrator, the perpetrator has to provide reparation to victims. There is also another way to have an effective remedy, particularly when conflict-related sexual violence happens, and that is through domestic reparation programs. They are an administrative remedy, they are not a judicial remedy, and they often are programs enacted by the government through a decree or a law supported by parliament, where what they aim to do is to respond to massive harm that has been uh, present in relation to many, if not millions of persons, to avoid them having to go through courts that take a lot of time, are very expensive, can produce harm, have very high thresholds of, of evidence, etc. And through domestic reparation programs, what you try to do is to enable fast access to reparation uh, by allowing survivors, in this case survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, not to be re-victimized in theory, not to have to complete, uh, you know, or, or fulfill many, many requirements as you will have to in a court of law, uh, in order for the person to really be able to have prompt access to, to reparation. So these are the two remedies you need to have in place. And I would say it's not one or the other. When we are talking about conflict-related sexual violence, I want to make this point very clear what we really need are not only judicial remedies, but domestic reparation programs, because we need to respond to the massive situation of conflict-related sexual violence. We don't want this to take years, as often cases do. They take 20 years, and I will refer now uh, to one of those cases, to get a judgment, to then start the process of implementation of the judgment. That's not what survivors need. Survivors need justice, yes, but they need urgent action. They need access to medicines. They need access to livelihood. They need access to safe places and, and, and spaces where they feel they can speak about what has happened to them. They need to be able to, de they need to, be able to deal with the stigma uh, and ostracism that is present after sexual violence happens in their families, in their communities, etc. So this is why we cannot wait for a judgment to happen to act on reparations for survivors and conflict-related sexual violence. And my claim here is that an effective remedy in relation to conflict-related sexual violence is really the creation of domestic reparation programs. Now, what are the issues in relation to implementation when we think about this obligation that states have to put in place these effective remedies? Well, uh, the Global Reparations Study of the Global Survivors Fund for which I work uh, is putting in place a seminal piece of research that is including 28 countries that are facing systematic conflict-related sexual violence in order to understand the status and challenges to reparations that survivors face and to gather their perceptions and views of survivors. This study, which as I say is seminal, has involved more than 40 local, regional and international organizations and more than a thousand survivors 
and in the first trench of states that have been included in this research project uh, that include the following 16 states, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Burundi, Cambodia, the Central African Republic, Chad, Colombia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Gambia, Guinea, Iraq, Kenya, Nepal, South Sudan, Syria, Uganda, and Ukraine, what is clear is that states don't have in place domestic reparation programs uh, that, as I said, should be the effective remedy for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. Of these 16 states, there are only three that have domestic reparation programs in place. The first one being Iraq with the Yazidi law that was uh, put in place a year ago, more than a year ago. Colombia with the Victims and Land Restitution Law from 2011, and also Bosnia and Herzegovina with uh, a system that covers three different regions in the country because this is a federal state. Uh, but when one goes and looks at the actual implementation of these frameworks, what one recognizes is that although these states have made great efforts to recognize and put in place a system uh, that responds to survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, there is still a lot to be done to ensure that these laws and mechanisms are fully implemented. Uh, there are many issues in place from, for example, the lack of recognition of children born of war. This is uh, not only an issue, for example, in relation to countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina, where survivors of conflict-related sexual violence are recognized as victims, but not children born of war. But this is also a problem that we face around the world because, as I said before, uh, we are only getting to deal, really, uh, legally and operationally with the reality of survivors of children born of war. So I, I want to put that comment into context. The other point I would like to make is that uh, other of the issues that we face is an issue related to the massivity of victimization. Countries like Colombia have more than 9 million victims currently registered at the registry of victims, uh, and this is more than 18% of the Colombian population. So to provide reparations to a big, a massive number of victims becomes a massive challenge for states to be able to deliver on reparations. And also, when you try to be very comprehensive on the measures you want to provide, this also creates multiple challenges to be able to make these uh, remedies uh, effective uh, and adequate to the harms you intend to address. <clears throat> but let me now quickly tell you also something about judicial remedies. As I said before, it is important to note that both justice, meaning the investigation, prosecution, and punishment of perpetrators, is a form of reparation, but also that through justice processes, survivors can obtain other forms of reparation. I think it's very important to keep these two dimensions in mind. Uh, and a good example of how this happens is, for example, uh, the Roman Statute of the International Criminal Court that is both a way to deliver justice as a form of satisfaction to survivors, as a way of recognition of what happened, but also that through the proceedings at the International Criminal Court, a survivor, a victim that has been part of the proceeding, as say, for example, in the Taganda case, uh, in the situation of the DRC, would also be able to receive reparations at the end of the criminal process. And, and there is already a decision on reparations in the Taganda case that is under implementation. Uh, but on criminal prosecutions as a form of reparative justice, 
I need to say that impunity reigns. This is the rule worldwide, and few judicial systems, particularly criminal processes worldwide, allow victims to actually access full reparation beyond compensation. Many of them, if at all, would only end up providing compensation to victims. But there are some landmark decisions of criminal courts at the domestic level that have actually set a great example. And here I have in mind cases like the Sepur Sarko case in Guatemala, where two members of the military were found guilty for various crimes, including sexual slavery of indigenous women, or various decisions taken by the Colombian judges applying the justice and peace law. There is a rich jurisprudence coming out from uh, these judges on conflict-related sexual violence and reproductive violence that includes very rich decisions on reparations. Equally, there are landmark international decisions taken by the International Criminal Court or the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Going back to the case of Taganda in the situation of the DRC, where the court had to adjudicate on sexual violence, including rape and sexual slavery, among many other counts, uh, the court uh, was uh, really to the point in setting up important reparation principles, such as the need to have a victim-centered approach, have a gender-inclusive and sensitive approach to reparations, including dignity, non-discrimination, and non-stigmatization, recognizing for the first time that children born of war can be direct victims of conflict-related sexual violence, of crimes under the jurisdiction of the court. This is a massive achievement, again, as part of this process that I'm saying is currently happening of finally tackling how do we respond to children born of war, uh, etc. But this decision, although very important in terms of reparation, that also creates a new uh, understanding of reparation as it brings to the table this idea that you can have collective reparations with an individualized component, uh, while very, very important, reminds us of the many challenges we face when we aim to obtain reparation through court. Let me say this about this case. The, the Taganda crimes were committed in Ituri, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, between 2022 and 2023. In 2006, uh, the, the prosecutor's office begins to know of the situation, and a judgment is handed down in 2019. And in March 2021, the judgment on reparations was handed down by the ICC, instructing the trust fund to put together a full implementation plan on reparations, which is currently ongoing. This means that from the moment of the onset of the facts in this case, in 2002 and 2003, uh, almost 20 years have passed for victims to be able to secure justice and for victims to be able to secure reparation, uh, which means uh, that it is very important for us to consider whether this is uh, timely justice and timely reparation. But problems of implementation, where laws and institutions exist, also respond to other issues that require a clear gender approach. Lack of underreporting for conflict-related sexual violence is a massive issue that prevents the implementation of frameworks that states have uh, through effective remedies. Why? 
because survivors are scared to talk. They are facing a stigma, they are facing ostracism, but of course they are also facing the injuries resulting from conflict-related sexual violence, such as their bodies being destroyed, their urinary systems being destroyed, their reproductive systems being destroyed as a result of what happened to them, without access to the essential medical services and psychological services that would put them in a position to actually try to use the rights that they have as right holders, no? to claim reparation, to claim justice. So survivors are not being able to have access to those enablers of reparation that are key to allow these frameworks to be implemented. Uh, a key problem here as well is that assume for a moment that survivors are ready to speak about what happened to them. Then uh, they are exposed to many risks and many threats because many times these domestic reparation programs have not put in place safe and trusted spaces for survivors to be able to come forward. And when they do, what they face is exposure to those that will re-victimize them. Let me remind you of something here that is crucial. Survivors of conflict-related uh, conflict sexual violence not only suffer the primary form of victimization, be it rape, sexual slavery, and the like, and the other ones that happened through it, as I mentioned, displacement, etc. But once the community and their families know what happened, there is a new form of victimization that comes from different actors and subjects. Yes, And we need to be able to address this through the remedies that are put in place. So safe spaces, trusted spaces, uh, camouflage measures, not calling them survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, but for example, as in Iraq, uh, survivors of captivity, of ISIS, yes, is, is a way to try to protect them from the exposure about what happened to them. And we don't have this in place, and this, of course, hampers implementation. Another implementation problem is the result of the lack of recognition of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence as right holders that should be always at the center of any reparation process. What we've seen is that top-down approaches through domestic reparation programs that exclude survivors, deciding for them, are harder to implement and minimize the potential transformative potential of these domestic reparation programs. We need to put survivors at the center because they know better than anyone what they need, but also because they know what the risks and threats are and they can actually point the states and other actors besides the state in the right direction as to how best to go implementing and fulfilling the right to reparation. As they say, and I've heard this many times, nothing for us without us. And I think that the recognition, for example, in resolutions of the Security Council, like 2467-2019, about the need of a survivor center approach and increased recognition nowadays of the right to participation that victims in general have, but that particularly survivors of conflict-related sexual violence have, are key to ensure better implementation in the, in the future. But implementation also faces challenges because of the absence of a multi-stakeholder approach. What we've learned is that if well is true that states are those that have the obligation to provide reparation or the perpetrators of the crime that have the obligation to provide reparation, 
it doesn't mean that other actors cannot be involved in the fulfillment of this right. Why? You saw it clearly on the example I gave before. If, for example, survivors don't trust the state because the state was actually the perpetrator of the crime, or if they don't trust other actors because the, 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 the texture of the fabric of society has been broken, you need to appeal to those that are able to put that layer of trust there. Many times, community of survivors could be religious leaders, could be family members at times, that are the ones that are ready there to give a hand to survivors and to facilitate, for example, that they come forward and they talk. So it is very important that while we recognize that the primary uh, obligations come from the state and perpetrators, this does not mean that others cannot be involved in the implementation process. And we need to create uh, these really uh, ecosystem of actors that enable reparations uh, for survivors. Uh, reparations are also meant to be holistic. As I said, you know, the basic principles, for example, talk about five forms of reparation. And while we recognize that it is impossible to undo the harm that has taken place because of the gravity, uh, it is clear that we use different forms of reparation to try and wipe out as much as possible the consequences of the harm that has been inflicted on the survivor, on the family, on the community, because conflict-related sexual violence does not only cause individual harm, it can cause other types of harm, including collective harm. But what is important to note here is that when we deal with these variety of forms of reparation, and we set up domestic reparation programs to respond to the obligation to set up or put in place effective remedies, what we have is different forms of reparation that have different nature and that require different actors to implement them. The problem then is how to ensure that they are given, that these forms of reparation are given in a harmonic manner to strengthen the reparatory process and not as a set of disarticulated measures that rather than helping survivors could end up causing harm and revictimization. And we've seen this in different domestic reparation programs that have included different forms of reparation. Uh, here I mentioned, for example, uh, the beautiful uh, Victims and Land Restitution Law in Colombia, which is probably the most ambitious and comprehensive domestic reparation program uh, worldwide that although recognizes all forms of reparation, recognizes that reparations need to be transformative, in practice, on the operationalization of this law, what we see is that Colombia is facing challenges on how to go about delivering in an articulated manner the various forms of reparation in order to provide survivors not only with the forms of reparation, but also with that reparatory experience that is so important uh, to help survivors gain and regain uh, the, the feeling that they are right holders and that they can actually uh, recover from what happened to them. Finally, on implementation, it must be noted that while reparations are recognized as a right, a state action and collective action to financially support those processes is absent. Providing reparations to survivors of conflict-related sexual violence can, can take decades. This is not the work of, of one year or two years. 
Think about rehabilitation services, for example, or psychological support. Uh, this is not going to happen, again, uh, for a little uh, period of time, but would be required in many occasions for years to come. Uh, this means that it is essential that states find the resources to be able to finance domestic reparation programs or other remedies in an adequate manner. Of course, when we talk about conflict-related sexual violence, we need to remember that states face serious challenges to fund these types of remedies because they are facing conflict. So these are very fragile states most of the times that are facing war with full devastation as a result of the ongoing conflict. But that does not mean that there are no ways to provide reparation. Indeed, there are. And one thing that states could do is start by allocating a budgetary line to provide reparations, do a full forecast of the potential cost of providing reparations to survivors, but also involve the international community on how best to go about funding such programs. Repurposing of assets is a key means to finance domestic reparation programs. Equally, for example, settlements in which corporations entered as a result of corruption or bribery investigations should be considered as potential sources to finance domestic reparation programs. Another key line of funding here could be the negotiation of the international debt by some of these conflict states in order for them to be able to redirect resources towards reparations. So there are many things that can be done to actually find the resources to fund reparations. But here, let me also say something very important. In the work that we are currently doing at the Global Survivors Fund, what we are seeing is that reparations are actually affordable. If states respond in a timely manner to the harms that are taking place and not 20 or 30 years down the line, uh, they can actually prevent more harm from actually continuing to ensue, which means reducing costs, but also allowing survivors to act as right holders very quickly on, and therefore the cost at the end of the day of these programs uh, will be, can, be, can be reduced. And if survivors are put at the center and there is a clear involvement and participation by survivors on these processes that start from the design, implementation, monitoring and evaluation of domestic reparation programs, then the costs are also reduced. Because as I said before, survivors know better what is needed to provide reparation. So they can actually simplify processes, help the state to be more effective in the delivery, uh, etc. So there are many reasons why uh, it is important to act in a prompt manner. Not only, although first of all, because survivors need it. They need urgent response by states. But there are many economic reasons as to why states should actually act in a prompt manner. Final point that I would like to make is related to guarantees of non-repetition and prevention. And the massive gap that we see in a state action uh, trying to address the structural causes that allow violations to happen. Let me say this, conflict-related sexual violence happens as a result of the continuum of violence that predates conflict, as there is a gender-based discrimination and violence that underpins uh, these crimes. Indeed, according to the World Health Organization and the UN Children's Fund, 
one of every three women and girls has been subjected to gender-based violence, and one in 10 girls has been subjected to rape. The continuum of violence must be addressed as reparations cannot happen without removing the causes that made it possible. Imagine, for example, that we are able to provide a survivor of conflict-related sexual violence with compensation, with rehabilitation, with measures of satisfaction, just to find out that one year down the line, that survivor is facing again conflict-related sexual violence because states did not act in addressing the structural causes of such violence. So we don't want this to happen. And that's why it is key that at the same time that we put in place other forms of reparation, we also act on non-repetition. And I know that acting on non-repetition is a difficult, challenging subject because it requires of a state action, but it also requires of others' action. I said before that survivors are exposed to stigma and ostracism by other actors, that they are re-victimized by other perpetrators down the line, which are at times their families, their communities, etc. So we need also to work with these other actors to ensure that there is a transformation of patriarchal ideologies that have allowed these structures of discrimination. We need, for example, to work on new masculinities. We need, for example, at the same time that we work on individual reparations for survivors, to work on, on reparative measures that include the community so that the community can really understand what happened, come to terms with it, but also understand that those structures that allowed it are not acceptable and that things need to change. So addressing this massive gap is absolutely crucial in the years to come if we really want reparations to have a lasting effect. And maybe here I just would conclude by saying the following. Transformative reparations, this key concept that comes, for example, from the Nairobi Declaration or the cotton field case versus Mexico decided by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, saying to us that the concept of restitutio ad integrum, that is the concept that international law puts forward through cases like the Chorso Factory case, uh, is not applicable and is not desirable in cases of conflict-related sexual violence precisely because we cannot bring back a victim to a situation of discrimination and structural violence. We need to address those structures if we really want reparation to have a meaning and to have lasting effects. Let me conclude by saying that it is an incentive to provide reparation to survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. From, from the burden, many times it is thought to be. Costs can be reduced if states act in a timely manner. The fabric of society, the social fabric, can be rebuilt. Survivors gain agency and they can make a unique contribution to sustainable peace uh, in conflict states. So there are many reasons why investing in a timely manner in adequate, prompt, and effective reparation for survivors of conflict-related uh, conflict sexual violence should be at the center of any transitional reparation policy in any state facing conflict. Thank you.